Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. If you know anything about history, you know that for centuries, people thought that the center of the solar system was what? They thought the earth was at the center, didn't they? And it wasn't until 500 years ago that Copernicus and later Galileo argued that the sun was, in fact, at the center of the solar system. And Galileo's championing of Copernicus's theory was controversial within his lifetime. And a large number of philosophers and religious leaders rejected the sun being at the center of the solar system. After 1610, when Galileo began publicly supporting the heliocentric view, he was, uh, he was met with bitter opposition. And some philosophers and clerics later denounced him in the Roman Inquisition, which was in the early uh, 1615. And then in February of the next year, he had been cleared of the offense, but the Catholic Church to which he belonged um, condemned him and made him uh, basically commit to not speaking about this sun-centered view. Well, Galileo agreed, and he said, "I won't. Uh, I won't advance this theory any longer." Well, it was about 30 years later when he wrote perhaps his most famous work, called the Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, and he was tried. He was taken to trial and he was found to be a heretic. That the sun in no way could be at the center of our solar system. And as a result, they forced him to recant and spend the rest of his life under house arrest. Now, we understand that that Galileo was indeed correct based on um, uh, the scientific findings of, of how our solar system works. And really, the view of, of how people viewed the solar system is similar to the way that people are before they come to Christ. Everyone is be- born believing that he himself, that each person is at the center of their own life, that everything else revolves around them. And it's not until a person comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that they understand that in fact God is at the center of everything in life and we simply revolve around Him. We simply are at His bidding. We are His servants. And here in Mark chapter 8, Mark helps us to see that that it requires a work of the Spirit and some effort on our part to to denounce the world and all of its pleasures in order to follow after Christ. And so we're going to see the cost of discipleship this morning as we look at Mark chapter 8. Let's look at, uh, begin reading in verse 34. And he summoned the crowds with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels 
will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In order for us to understand this passage, the first thing that we need to look at is the meaning of discipleship. And what we're going to see today is that in order to follow Christ, we have to deny personal desires. We have to deny personal pleasures. So let's look at the meaning of discipleship to begin uh, this morning. Notice the series of logical statements that Jesus gives, beginning with, with verse 34, the middle of the verse. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and so on. Verse 35, if anyone wants to save his life, he will lose it. If anyone wants to lose his life for my sake, will save it. Verse 36, if anyone wants to gain the whole world, he will sacrifice his own soul. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him. So Christ here is drawing a line in the sand for the disciples. Here is what is demanded of a true follower of me. You want to follow me, you need to follow, be willing to follow me all the way to the cross. I don't accept half-hearted followers, Jesus is saying. I won't accept people who are trying to straddle the fence. I'm going to enjoy the pleasures of this world, but I'll also I'll take Jesus too. I'll add Jesus to my life. He says, no, if you're going to follow me, you need to come completely. Give up everything if that's what it takes, because I demand everything, even to the point where you have to be willing to risk your life for the sake of the gospel. And so Jesus is drawing a line for them. He had been speaking to the disciples alone, and uh, as we saw last week when Peter made this confession in verses 27 through 33. But now in verse 34, he summons the whole crowd. Look at the first part of the verse. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples. So he, he sends out this, this demand or this offer, this plea to these people, not just to, the, to his disciples who were near him, but also to, to the crowd who had been following him. And so he says, if you want to follow me, here are the requirements. The end of verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. True disciples of Christ are required to do three things. First of all, they need to deny themselves. One commentator explains it like this. Jesus is not talking about some temporary self-denial of luxuries or pleasures, but a complete abandoning of one's plans, goals, interests, motives, and a centering of everything on the Lord. That is what it means to be a disciple. It is to deny what we normally would like in order to, to fulfill what God would like of us. In other words, it's to place... God's will above our will. God's will above self-will. 
No longer are we at the center of our lives. It's like that geocentric view of the solar system. No longer are we that way. We understand now that God is at the center of everything. You see, in the past, we thought that the sun, okay, the people who believed in the earth being the center, they thought the sun revolved around the earth, right? And the same thing was true of us before we came to Christ. We thought that God revolved around us. That everything in life was meant to serve us. That all the things that happen in our lives were to give us greater pleasure. So we pick and choose what we want. And then every once in a while we need God, the Son, to come around and we need to shine some light on us. Okay, thank you. You're all set. Now you can move along. But what we realize when we come to Christ is that God is at the center. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow Me, you have to reject the lie of Satan that says that you are at the center of your life. You have to reject that lie and recognize that I, Jesus, I am at the center of all of life and you must submit to Me. So, the first thing that He calls His disciples to do is to deny themselves. Secondly, to take up their cross. What does it mean to take up one's cross? A person who recognizes his desperation and the fact that there is no way he could possibly save himself is willing to to do whatever it takes to follow Christ. That, that I'm going to hold nothing back. I will follow you all the way, even if it means death. Even if it means suffering for the sake of the Gospel. Now, for us, the cross is not as scandalous as it was for them in that day. We think that the cross is kind of cute. I mean, we put it as an ornament on our tree or wear it as a necklace or have little figurines around our house. We even have one up here in our church. When we look at a cross, it's not as scandalous as it was for a person in that day. When they heard Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, me, it, it meant something. It would be as scandalous as, as someone in our society wearing an electric chair around their neck or having a, uh, having a, a, um, a, uh, a little figurine set of a concentration camp in Auschwitz or, or a hangman's noose as earrings. I mean, these things create for us in our minds pictures of horror and terror. And and this is what the cross was for them. They recognized that Jesus wasn't saying, hey, let's go on to the park. It's going to be fun. We'll have a couple rides and we'll, we'll, we'll enjoy life. They recognized that following Christ could mean that it would cost them their very lives. No person in the first century would have had a symbol of a cross in their house or, or in their home because they recognized it as a form of, of Roman execution. And so the hearers of Jesus at this time would have said, would have recognized that Jesus was saying, certain death is coming to me. 
Okay, he's saying, take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to the cross, so you need to follow behind me. And that's the third thing that is required of a disciple. It is that they follow Christ, even if that means that they follow Him all the way to the cross. That doesn't mean just follow Him and watch Him there like some of them did. But that means follow Him and be willing to get up on that cross if, if need be. Or allow somebody to put you up there for the sake of the Gospel. So first requirement that Jesus has is really a denial of self which includes giving up all of life's pleasures in order to follow Him to the cross. Secondly, we see in verse 38, if we're going to be true disciples of Christ, then we need to be, uh, we can't be ashamed of Christ. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. To be ashamed of Christ simply means to deny Him in times of persecution. You remember in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus told the parable about the soils? He said there's, there's four different kinds of soil. You have the one that where the seed falls along the road and Satan comes and snatches it up. Uh, that is, he takes the Word and they, it doesn't even take root in that person's life. And then you have the seed that, that falls along the, uh, the the rocky soil. And because it doesn't take root, it, it doesn't last very long. And then there's the seed that goes into the thorny soil. And after a while it sprouts up, but then the thorns come and choke it out. And, and then there's the, the seed that's planted in the good soil that, that lasts and it actually grows and produces fruit. Well, what Jesus is saying is don't be like that seed that's in the rocky soil. The rocky soil was the one that sprouted up. It looked like it had life, like it had spiritual life. But then when times of persecution came, when when the sun came and beat down on it, when the storms came of life, it died. It withered. It, it, It proved that it really didn't have the depth that it needed. It didn't have the the depth in, uh, of root into the water source that it needed to survive. Not that a person can come to Christ and then go away from Christ, but they can come as if they've come to Christ. They can it can appear as if they've become a child of God to us. But then, when the times of persecution come, they fall away and prove that they never really did accept Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. This is exactly what Jesus is calling for. If you want to be a disciple of Mine, you can't be ashamed of Me. You have to be willing to stand up for Me. Paul says again in Philippians 3, 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. See what Paul's saying here? I don't care about anything in this life. All I care about is giving up my life for Christ. And I count all those other things as rubbish, as nothing, as waste in view of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. His goal was in view, and as a result, he was not ashamed of Christ. But it's not just—it's not just avoiding being ashamed of Christ. But notice the second part in verse 38: 
For whoever is ashamed of Me, and then notice, and My words. So it's not being ashamed of Christ and then closely connected with it is not being ashamed of Christ's words. You see, Jesus can say something like this because He he is, is very uh, connected with what He says. That if we stand with Christ, we can talk all we want about being a follower of Christ, but if we're not willing to stand for what Jesus has said, then we're not willing to stand with Christ. And so Jesus says, do this now so that when it comes time for My future glory, at the end of the verse it says, the Son of Man will also not be ashamed of Me when He comes in the glory of His Father. That is, when I come and I receive the glory from the Father and I act as judge on all people, I will not be ashamed of you in that time. I will accept you because you accepted Me. The time for us to accept Jesus is now. And part of that accepting is being willing to deny ourselves and not being ashamed of Christ or His words. And obviously we know His words are found in the Bible. So that's what a disciple is according to Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 35-37, to we see the futility of trying to preserve one's own life. The, the, the vanity of trying to preserve our own life. Notice in verse 35, Jesus tells us that it's folly to trade away our eternal salvation for the temporary gains of this life. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In other words, whoever wishes to preserve his self-centered life, okay, whoever wishes to, to preserve the idea that we are at the center of everything and God is just existing for us, if you want to, you want to live for that idea, then Jesus says, what does He say, verse 35? You will lose it. You try to preserve your self-centered life, you're going to lose it. But He says in the second part of the verse, if you're willing to give up that self-centered life, then you will gain eternal life. You will be able to stand with Me in glory. And so where are you going to stand? He says it's futile. It's vain to try to pursue after a self-centered life because it's, it, it, it's worthless. It all will be burned up in the end. All the things that you've tried to strive for will be gone. In fact, verses 36 and 37 teach us that. Once the eternal soul is lost, what could there possibly be given in order to buy it back? Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying, if you want to gain all the things in life that that could possibly be achieved, let's just take for an example the, the most extreme thing that could possibly happen to anybody, that they gained all the riches of this world, they gained all the power, and they accomplished everything that was possible. He says, let's just say, for example, that happened. What would that mean if you lost your own soul? What good would that do you in the life to come? 
If you spend all your life pursuing all those things, what good would it do if you lost, and when he says your soul, he means eternal life, the opportunity to accept eternal life. And the implied answer is it would do you nothing. It doesn't profit a person anything if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. To have all that the world offers and yet not have Christ is to be eternally bankrupt. All the world's goods will not compensate for losing one's soul. So we've seen the description of a disciple. It's one who follows after Christ no matter what the cost. And we've seen the folly of trying to preserve our own life. Now we need to see what is the cost of discipleship. What will it cost me? Jesus, we've looked at this already so it won't take a lot of time, but Jesus says that it's a denial of personal desires. He says to deny yourself. He's calling for genuine commitment, not half-hearted following. Give me your life. Give me all of it. Jim Elliott said, the, the great missionary of the 50s to, to Ecuador said, He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's saying, I, I will give up whatever it takes so that I can gain something that I will not be able to be will not be able to lose, that will not be able to be taken away from me. That is eternal life. I'll give up everything in this world in order to get eternal life. And then Jesus takes in verse 1 of chapter 9 a specific example or a specific application to his disciples. He says, and he says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now, it seems as if this verse doesn't really fit with what Jesus has been saying. But once you understand what the verse means, you'll be able to see how it fits with what Jesus has been telling to the disciples. Now, there are several views of what this kingdom of God coming means. Some people would say that it's referring to His resurrection possible uh, that this could be true because Jesus did come in a powerful display of glory, that, that He received great glory at the resurrection. And so perhaps Jesus is saying, when, some of you will not die before you see My resurrection from the dead. And obviously all of these disciples lived uh, um, up until that point. It could be that the kingdom of God that's coming in power could be referring to the Spirit the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And this is also another display of Christ's power that came prior to the kingdom. And obviously many of these apostles were there during that time. Others would suggest that this is probably not as likely the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which was AD 70. Um, however, this doesn't reflect a positive growth of the kingdom. So this is probably not the case. could be that Jesus is saying, that some of you won't die until I come back, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when He comes back and brings to heaven all those who are with Him. But obviously it can't be referring to this because the disciples uh, have died and Jesus still has not come back. Uh, but perhaps the best understanding, and I think this is the accurate one, is is referring Jesus is referring to when He's saying the kingdom of God is coming in power 
Okay, you, some of you will see this before you die. He's referring to the very next story that takes place in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And that is the transfiguration. All, uh, the other two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, who record the same phrase, that the kingdom of God will come in power and you will see it. They all record it right before this, this story of the transfiguration. We'll talk exactly about what that means but uh, next week. But, but I would say to you that Jesus is saying, listen, I am going to show you an element of my glory. I'm going to show you an element of my glory before you die. And what happens up on that mountain? Jesus has some of what is inside of Him come out. That is, the glory that He has as being God is shown through His person to the point where not only is His skin radiant, but it says His clothes are as white as any launderer could ever make them. And that's how radiant He becomes. And so what Jesus is saying here is, listen, remember what He told the disciples last week that we looked at? He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the priests and the Pharisees, and I'm going to die. But you know what? I'm not going to say, Dad, I'll show you I'll show you part of my glory. And so he goes up onto the mountain and reveals who he is to them, to these three disciples that go up with him. And he says, If I can if I can receive glory after my death, now won't you be willing to follow me to the cross and be willing to die? Because after that time, you see, you will also receive glory. When I, when, when I give you praise, basically, for following me, when God is glorified in your life because of your following, some of them would see a glimpse of Christ's glory before He died. And that's something that most people don't get to see. And if you want to follow me and receive greater glory, then you need to be willing to follow me all the way to death. Even if it means that you have to give up your life for me. So here are the two choices that Jesus lays out for them. You either accept me as Christ, as the Messiah, as God, come in human form, or you reject me. Those are your two choices. Which is it going to be? Just as Christ died and received future glory, so also when we courageously stand for Christ, when we are not ashamed, then in that future generation that Jesus talks about, then Christ will give us glory in the sense that He will not be ashamed of us. He will say, yes, this person accepted me, so I am going to accept Him. The cost of our discipleship is a great one. It is that we follow Christ even if it means suffering and death. And you know, for us, it is easy for us to say that we would be willing to die for Christ. That we would be willing to give up our lives for Him. If someone came into this room now and said, either deny Christ or I'm going to kill you, We've we've probably all thought about that situation. We thought, you know what? I would stand up for Christ. I would be willing to die in that situation. And you know, that's probably not happened to any one of us. And so we don't really know what we would do. 
And perhaps the best way to answer that question, whether or not we would be willing to die for Christ in that situation, is to ask this question. Are we willing to live for Christ now? The question is not, will you die for Christ? That is important, yes. But if you're willing to die for Christ, then you would be willing to live for Christ. That you would be willing to stand up for His name and His Word. That you would not be ashamed of Him. You know, sometimes we get so fearful of what man can do to us that we say, you know what? I'm not going to tell that person about my Savior. Do you know what they could do to me? My neighbors, they already don't like me. And if I just tell them about Jesus, they're going to think I'm even weirder than I already am. Or my family, they'll reject me and they they won't want to talk to me. I mean, why would God ask me to do this, to stand up for Him like this? Doesn't He want me to be happy? And you know, God does want you to be happy. He doesn't want to be happy in the way that you think you want to be happy. He wants you to be happy in Him. And the way that you receive happiness in this lifetime is by putting your joy in Him. It's by giving up all the pleasures of this world. And to come on the side of Christ and recognize that He's at the center of everything and that we must submit to Him. We often think, well, well, what would it be like if we got everything we wanted? I mean, what would it be like if God gave us everything that we ever asked for? Think about that for a second. I mean, you could have more money to give to church, of course. That's what we would use it for. We'd have a nicer car, a nicer house, a new boat, so that we could praise God with with His creation out on the water, right? I mean, we'd have a better set of parents, a better spouse, better kids, better boss. All the traffic lights would work in our favor. All poverty would be gone in the world. I mean, what would it be like if we got everything we ever wanted? If everything that we ever wanted was given to us and and we received exactly what we, we asked for, then we would be God. We would be our own God. But I have some news for you that you are not God. And, and so you don't you are not at the center of your life. God is. And you live. You were created to serve Him. Everything in your life must revolve around God because you are His servant. He is your Creator. He is your Master. and He knows much more than you do. And that's why you don't get what you want often because you use it to spend it on your own lusts, on your own desires. And thank God we don't get what we want because sometimes God gives people what they want. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. That people deny God, they reject Him, they suppress the truth, they don't want to accept Him as King. And so what does God do to them? He gives them what they want. He gives them over to the depravity of their minds and they serve themselves for the rest of their lives. And they reject this God And as a result, they are condemned even greater 
than if they, they had just uh, just simply denied Him. God gives them over to, to a depraved mind. And when we are dissatisfied with what we have in life, we show our dissatisfaction for God. We say, God, what You've given me is not enough. I, I could be a better God than You could. Just give me, give me time. Let me give it a try. And what we find in Scripture is that when we shake our fists in the hand of God like that, often He allows those people to go down that path and try to pursue it and show them that there is nothing greater than God. And if they don't recognize that, if we don't recognize that in this lifetime, we surely will recognize that on the Day of Judgment when we stand before God and we say, God, I thought I could make a better God than You. I thought that the world revolved around me. But now I realize as I stand before You in judgment that I stand condemned. And God will cast us into outer darkness into the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we will spend an eternity apart from Him. But you see, Jesus is saying, listen, there is hope. You don't have to be a part of that judgment. You can stand before God rightly. If you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Me, not be ashamed of Me and My words, And if you do that, I will stand before God on that day and I will not be ashamed of you. And instead of God bringing His judgment down upon you, I will stand in your place. You know, that's what Christ did for you on the cross. He became a curse for you so that you would not have to be cursed by God. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, then Christ is is demanding you to come to Him, to follow Him, to to give up the pleasures of this world and be willing to, to do whatever it takes for Christ. And that begins with admitting that you have been the king of your life, that you have been at the center of your life, and then believing that Jesus Christ is all that you need to stand rightly before God. And if you do that, the Scriptures say that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If anyone confesses with their mouth or believes in their heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, they will be saved. God will save them. And if you are a Christian, are you willing to follow Christ? Even if it means to the point of execution. And the real test is, are you willing to live for him now. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we are humbled at the cost that is required to follow Jesus Christ. And we understand that this is not the basis of our salvation, but it's the the minimum that we can give back after all that you've given to us. I mean, after all, you, you, have, you have wiped out the penalty that was due to us by allowing Jesus to take our place. 
And if we have accepted Him as our Savior, the very least that we can do, as Paul says in Romans, is to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. The very least we can do. And we are humbled because there are times that we admit that we are ashamed of You and of Jesus Christ. We can think of specific instances, perhaps even this week, when when someone was talking to us and we knew we needed, we should have explained the Scriptures to them and shown them the hope that there is in the Gospel and we just were ashamed. We were afraid of what could have happened to us. And so we ask that You would help us to, to recognize what it means to follow Christ and that we would see the payment of Jesus Christ so clearly that as we sang this morning, that we would be recognizing that the road to eternal life is not necessarily a road of ease. It could be sailed through on bloody seas like we sang. And we want to give our entire lives to You and to give up all of our personal pleasures in order to serve You. And we know that our greatest pleasure comes from knowing You, the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ and the riches there are with Him. When we stand as co-heirs with Him in Your glory, and we look forward to that day when You will call Your people home And You know, Lord, that we are weak and that we need Your help. We live in a world that is cursed by sin where there's problems and and life that is all messed up around us. And it's hard to make right choices amid, amid all of these conflicts. But we know that we are not alone because Your Word says that that Jesus is with us always, building His church and that the Spirit has been left as our Comforter, the One who can uh, comfort us in all of our troubles. And we ask that You give us the boldness and the strength to stand, that You would increase our faith and help us to live for You, to live for the One who died for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.